Hello, and you are very welcome back to the Public Eye Business Podcast brought to you by Granite Exchange. I'm your host, Sarah Travers, and throughout the series, I'm speaking with local entrepreneurs and business owners to learn more about how their companies have come to be, to gain insight into their growth, and find out how they continue to innovate. So wherever you get your podcasts from, remember to keep an eye out for all new episodes and subscribe to stay up to date. Today I'm joined by Sinead Lunny, Managing Director and Founder of Vocalis Public Speaking. Sinead, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm very well, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's lovely to see you. Now, just before we begin, a little bit of background on Sinead and her business. So, Sinead is an award-winning speech and drama teacher and she founded Vocalis in 2017 after practising as a solicitor for 15 years. After a family trauma, Sinead was left to reassess her career in law and Vocalis was born. Vocalis Public Speaking offer a range of services from wedding speech training, audiobook narration, accent and dialect work, presentation skills and much, much more. Now Sinead's passion is the voice and how she can help people speak with impact. What an intro, Sinead. And there'll be lots of people listening to this right now going, I need her help. <laughs> so tell us a little bit of background. So the background was law, but you always loved the speech and drama. Uh, the two, the law and speech and drama kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Absolutely, they do, Sarah. I went to Our Ladies Grammar School here in Newry, and I was always very much interested in drama, English, languages, all the arty subjects at school. What happened was for A-level I did English and French and Irish and I simply fell into law. My family is in the law and there was absolutely no pressure from them, I hasten to add. But I wasn't particularly strong at anything scientific or mathematical. I didn't really consider becoming a teacher. So it seemed like a natural step for me. So I went to Queen's University and I studied law with French and... I adored the French, still do, and I simply tolerated the law. So I spent four years looking forward to every French class and almost dreading every law class, which (laughs) isn't a great way to be at university. So I qualified as a solicitor and ended up working for about 15 years as a lawyer. And where did you work then? I worked initially in Belfast and I then worked in... Newry and then Lisburn so all over regional practices very varied quite general I didn't particularly enjoy it the only thing I was interested in really was being in the courtroom and listening to other advocates and trying to work out what is it that gives her gravitas or how come he was able to persuade a jury but he wasn't and a lot of it for me appeared to be in First of all, the way they held themselves, but also their voice. And mm. I've always been such a vocal geek. So that's what I was interested in in the courtroom. And yes, so really that is the background to where I am now. And that's really interesting. I would be the same as you. Now, I have no legal uh, training, but I love a good courtroom drama. And I'm thinking of Atticus Finch and those amazing appeals or summing up or whatever to to the jury and how persuasive you can be with your storytelling or your evidence. So it is fascinating. Now, you say you didn't really enjoy it. At that stage, did you think, I wonder, is there an out? 
I didn't at that stage, Sarah, because I was under the naive impression that everyone simply tolerated their job, which in hindsight is pretty frightening. It's quite sad, really. It is quite sad. So I, you know, punched the day in, which is no way to do it, really. Now, having said that, I worked hard, but I didn't ever particularly have a passion for it. And to answer your question, Sarah, in those early days, no, I didn't think there was an option. And if there was an option, perhaps I thought, you know, it's going to be too much hassle, a job for life in inverted commas, good career, good prospects, all the rest of it. So I didn't pursue anything at that stage. It wasn't until later that I decided to change career. And then when you became a mum um, and and your little boy became unwell, that was the big life-changing moment for you. It was, Sarah. That was the catalyst. So we have two children, Ava, who will be 12 in a few days, and Niall, who is eight. And whenever Niall was born, we assumed he was perfectly healthy. He looked healthy, certainly to us. And then at the age of about eight weeks, seven or eight weeks old, he contracted bronchiolitis, Mm. which in itself is pretty horrendous. So he was admitted into Craigavon Hospital and unfortunately he wasn't getting any better. And I was looking at the other little babies and the SATs machines and realising that Niall's SATs were lower than everybody else's. And because I'd so much time in the hospital worrying about him, I started to question why he was still in hospital after a couple of weeks and the other children had improved and were sent home. So then to our horror, he was diagnosed with a heart problem, TAPVD is the abbreviated term. And it was such a shock, Sarah, because the pregnancy was healthy, normal, and there is no history of cardiac issues on either side. So it was a real slap in the face. So panic then set in and he was immediately blue lighted up to the Royal. He was there for about another four or five weeks, perhaps, and he was quarantined. Now, of course, this was long before COVID. This Mm. was 2015, the early part of the year. And he contracted pneumonia. He contracted another infection and he was too ill to have the surgery. And of course, unfortunately, in Northern Ireland, there is no longer an option to have surgery here. So the poor children and their parents have to travel over to England. Where did you have to go? We went to Evelina in London. And in hindsight, it was extremely surreal because we were transported over there in a private plane. Under any other circumstance, it would have been amazing. But we got to London, you know, staggered around in the London sun, really, really worried. And the hospital was absolutely second to none. It was fantastically equipped. The nurses and the doctors were so knowledgeable. So he underwent his operation in London. And I'll never forget, you know, looking back, clearly it's easy to pick out bits that were maybe not as serious as the rest. And my husband said to me minutes before accompanying young Niall down to the operation, he said, Sinead, by the way, I've booked us both to go in the London Eye while Niall's having his operation. <laughs> now, <laughs> oh, bless him. I was completely stunned. And you thought, I will not be going nowhere. Absolutely. I said, pardon? And he said, 
Well, what were you expecting to do? You know, were you going to go into a room and cry for five hours while the operation was happening? And I said, that's exactly what I planned to do. Thank you very much. So he said, no, you're coming with me. It was the best thing we did to take our mind off it. And because there was nothing you could do anyway, but you just felt like you had to be there, I'm sure, as well. Yes. And (gasps) whenever we got to the London Eye, the host was so you know, sparky and friendly, gave us both a glass of Prosecco and said, oh, guys, are you over for the weekend? And Niall just said... You don't want to know. Absolutely. Our our child is over there in the hospital having an operation. He probably thought we were completely mad. Gosh. So now people always think, goodness, you know, it just sounds so bizarre, but it was the best thing ever. But to cut a long story short, he is healthy now. He will always have the heart problem, unfortunately, but he is extremely active indeed. He has his scar, which he calls his zip line and he shows it to everyone who asks and even people who don't ask so a little pet and you know such a huge life-changing event for you there's your little baby who can you know has the bronchiolitis Uh, any parent who's who's had a little one with that will know how scary that is but then everything changed it did absolutely and then of course we had another well we still have another child Ava who was only three yes how did you manage with Ava well my parents-in-law and my own parents were extremely helpful so you know she was none the wiser she thought she was having a great time with her grandparents but you know she still talks about it clearly she was three so it's probably you know us talking about it that you know sparks little memories but it was a very traumatic time but then from that grew my new career so that's the silver lining really so at what point did that happen Well, I went back to work as a solicitor after my maternity leave, even though I did have some thoughts of, can I possibly go back to the office? I don't enjoy it. I need to do something else. There wasn't enough time, I suppose, to organise things. So I went back to work for a couple of months. And then in or around March, April time, 2017, I had an epiphany one evening. And I said to my husband, I'm going to resign. So he was pretty surprised because clearly I'd nothing set up. So that was me about to walk out of a well-paid job, a secure job into the abyss. And the only other thing that I was qualified in was speech and drama. So I thought, I wonder, could I teach speech and drama for a few hours at the weekend, perhaps, and it might grow from there. So that's what I did. And it was such a risk and it was a very stressful time because my income went to zero. Absolutely. So it was a pretty stressful couple of months. But I began teaching speech and drama on a Saturday morning one weekend. There were three students in the class, one of whom was my daughter, who had no choice but to be there. And to say, didn't pay you probably either. No, unfortunately not. I must actually speak to her about that. (laughs) (laughs) To say I was elated coming out of that first class is, you know, it's no understatement. I was almost in tears. I taught them, you know, a couple of poems and a little acting piece. We did some drama games and I was just so enthralled with it. And the seed then was planted that I thought, right, I need to get some marketing sorted out here. I need to put out the feelers in terms of, are people going to actually come to my classes? And And where did you have the classes then? 
The first class, I think, was in Banbridge Parish Centre. So an amazing church hall with a lovely stage, really clean and safe for the children. And because I'd been such a drama kid, friends of mine who now have their own children got very excited and said, oh, brilliant, I'm going to send Molly to you. Or, you know, I wonder, could you do a class on a Tuesday evening because Oscar would love to come? So it grew from there. And before I knew it, I was working six days a week with plenty of classes and it gave us a little bit more security, I suppose. So it was the speech and drama school only that I was working on for, I suppose, a couple of months or so. And did you have any overheads or were people very good to you with uh, lending halls and rooms and things like that? Well, yes, there were some overheads at the time, but they were very reasonable, to be honest. So there would have been the higher fees for the church hall and all of the resources I printed out. I spent a fortune on, you know, typing things out, printing them off. And the good thing is that Banbridge has such a vibrant festival scene, a bit like Newry here. So Banbridge Festival... You know, every November they have an amazing event where thousands, there are about 2,000 performers each year, take to the stage, say their poems, acting pieces, mime, news reading, in fact. Is that right? Yes, it's (laughs) spectacular. So I threw myself into that, having performed at it myself as a child. And so that gave me a focus in terms of, right, we're going to aim for the festival so people have to learn their poems and your goals absolutely and then exams then took place after that so now we have exams annually through new year academy and ulster academy of speech and drama so that the speech and drama has looked after itself we now have a waiting list and i was going to say i mean you know they were queuing out the door and everybody wants to, to help their young one develop these skills which actually are so important aren't they and we've heard since COVID especially the social skills the softer skills the communication skills many employers are saying young people are just on their phones all the time they've lost those but getting in early getting people to be able to communicate getting them to be able to present getting them to be able to present an argument exactly and persuade people entertain people all of these things they are skills that will serve you for every part of your life. Absolutely. And even in terms of being used to standing in front of a crowd, of an audience, I think. Also, you will know this, Sarah, it is absolutely integral that you are comfortable or certainly more comfortable than you had been just, I suppose, to project an air of confidence so I have children in my classes as young as four some of whom came in at the start and said I'm too nervous to send my poem on the stage and now they are very confident and that really helps with reading aloud in the classroom as well and as you said then Sarah you know growing up going to big school university in terms of career interviews presentations these skills are for life so a tagline that I would quite often use for my speech and drama school is not just any hobby and in fact it's not really a hobby it is a life skill and absolutely vital for confidence and for impact. This podcast is sponsored by Granite Legal Services, a niche business law practice located in the heart of Newry City. We provide legal advice and representation to individuals and companies alike 
across a wide range of industries on an assortment of legal matters which can affect a business such as corporate, commercial, employment, dispute resolution, regulatory and compliance. We focus on providing legally sound, commercial and practical advice to our clients. To get in touch, contact 02830262200 or visit www.granitelegalservices.co.uk to find out more about the firm and our services. And when you're starting with those little ones, probably that's the best age to get in there because you don't have the inhibitions you don't have that everybody's looking at me, I'm different, I must be weird, I must sound awful. All of those th- negative, that inner critic in your head. At four, you don't tend to have that. Is that the best age to work with? I think so, Sarah. You know, I suppose like everything, early intervention is key. So the earlier you get in there and explain to them, there's no need for nerves. You're not nervous, you're excited. They uh-huh. all say back to me now, excited. Because sometimes whenever parents leave their children off, they notice we have the most wonderful wall of mirrors in my studio. The parents hate it. The kids love it. Immediately they put their stuff down, run over to the mirrors, even for body language, for standing up straight, for acting, seeing what you look like, you know, in front of an audience as well. We also have a stage to get used to that stage presence is just so, so important. So tell me then how you moved to taking on the mums and dads, really the adults that were going, okay, so my little child can do this. It's something I've hated all my (laughs) life. I've got to give a speech at a wedding. I've got to speak at this, but it's holding me back. How did you take the business to the next level? Well, actually, you've just answered that question (laughs) for me, Sarah. So thank you for that. What happened was actually mums and dads of my students came to me and said, look, I know you only teach children, but I have a job interview, I have a work presentation, I have a wedding speech, I have to read at mass or church, can you help me out? So I thought to myself, the skills are exactly the same. There's nothing different in them at all, apart from the fact that it might be slightly more formal or slightly more regimented, really, for the parents. So I began running workshops and doing one-to-one consultations with clients to prepare specifically for events. So I'm the kind of person that doesn't really like to waffle. I like to have qualifications behind me, not even to impress anyone, just for the kudos. So I know that I am teaching people the correct thing. So I did some training with New Air Academy and some other entities as well in terms of public speaking. And We now offer exams if people feel the need, if they're interested in pursuing exams in public speaking. Interview skills is another one that's very, very popular indeed. So the word just really spread, I suppose. My natural affinity, of course, even though I tried to run away from it, was the law. So ironically, lots of lawyers were coming to me quietly and saying, you know, I've been qualified for 20 years but there are young people coming in and they seem much more confident, which is true. I'm not sure if this is something that you have found, Sarah, but people in their 20s now, certainly I feel they're much more confident than I would have been you know, really self-assured. It depends the maybe on the person. Perhaps. Self-belief, And I, I think maybe, well, you look younger than me, Sinead, but um, I think when I, think so. I was growing up, 
you were taught to be very modest. You yes. couldn't have ideas above your station. Yes. And um, you didn't want to be a show off. So Absolutely. that held a lot of people back. I know I know, my own business, we do presentation skills yes. as well. But the more people that I hear that come to me and secretly say, you know, I've got this, I've got this secret. Mm-hmm. I hate doing this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I myself, I was a newsreader. Yes. But I struggled terribly with nerves. Yes. And I had to do so much work on myself to overcome the imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. the inner critic, the yes. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I must be perfect. All of those things. What, how do you help people then when they come to you and they say, I, I think I'm beyond help? Yes. Well, I think really there is a lot to do with habit, what we tell ourselves. And without sounding like a psychologist here, you know, A lot of the time I find in childhood, clients have had a very embarrassing event. You know, they have fallen off the stage in the school hall. Completely. Or they have forgotten their words or people have laughed at them in the classroom. And that, unfortunately, has, you know, taken over their perception of how they come across and how they speak, even if it was just one single incident. And so every time they have to present as an adult, these memories come flooding back all the time. So there's a lot of work around that, around explaining to people, you know, what is the worst thing that's going to happen? Usually the audience is on your side, not always, but usually you've got people rooting for you. So there's a lot of work that we would do in terms of breathing, techniques, mindset, the power pose. I've no doubt you know all of these things as well, Sarah. But our listeners mightn't. And and it might seem it's really good to sort of think if you would like to improve, can you improve? Can you get better? I would say absolutely. Of course, there are naturally good orators, without a doubt. And If you're a naturally good orator, lucky you. But I have found in my experience, most people are not. But the good news is you absolutely can improve. It's such a boring cliche, but practice really does make, perhaps not perfect, but certainly it makes you better. It certainly improves. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you'll become with it. And I agree with you. You made a comment earlier about nerves. I think if you weren't nervous, there'd be a problem because Mm. sometimes we would see people that are perhaps almost too confident, cocky, a little bit smug. We know those people. We know those people, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. Trying to be careful choosing my words here. But unfortunately then, they come across as a little bit diluted. They don't have the spark of someone who is nervous. They're almost quite, what's the word, They are expecting things to go brilliantly and you don't get the energy or the passion. So I get nervous too and I was nervous before I came in today and I'm very nervous now. But I think that nervous energy helps us because Mm -hmm. if you're passionate about what you do, if you're passionate about what you're speaking about, the nerves absolutely will help. So it's going back to the comment I made earlier, what I said to the children all the time, you're not nervous, you're excited. excited. It's exactly the same because it's the same reaction. Or even also accepting that the nerves come with the territory and you might have a sleepless night the day before and you might have that... I call it like pre-match nerves, you know, yes. or the sports people as well. It's the threshold anxiety just before you can feel 
oh, what did I, could have, could have phone in sick. Yeah. <laughs> I used to have that when I read the news some mornings, like, oh, really? and there were, there were certain days that you'd feel on it, yes. and then other days that it was just harder to, to switch on. But I can guarantee the days that I wasn't nervous, I messed up so much more. Isn't that incredible? Because it kept me sharp. It yes. kept me focused. And yes. when live TV, as you can imagine, <laughs> has a lot of potential for disaster. Yeah. Um, but you see, when the disaster happened, for some reason, I used to be brilliant. I was brilliant when it all went wrong. But on the days that it was all easy, too easy, yes, that's it. I couldn't speak. Absolutely. That's <laughs> so all tongue-tied and couldn't find the words. and Because you needed that nervous energy. Absolutely. Excited energy. Yes, indeed. And so you actually offer help as well for people doing podcasts. So many people come into the podcast studio here and they have the, the nerves. And it's that speaking about yourself as well, because a great public speaker tells stories. Yes. And then I don't know whether it's that Northern Irish upbringing too. We're great storytellers. We can tell loads of stories about other people. Mm -hmm. But when you have to delve a little bit deep into your own story you told us the story that started your business yes but that's what people remember that's it absolutely and storytelling is integral to everything I do you know because people as you mentioned remember stories as opposed to facts or statements or numbers and you I think form a rapport a lot more easily with people when you break it down to stories. If you're trying to explain a very complex concept or if you're trying to express something creatively, a story is a really, really good starting block. It also provides structure as well because sometimes if you don't have a good structure in place, you end up rambling and you're not sure where to go and then the ending becomes quite underwhelming. And again, as I say to my clients you know that ending was a little bit <laughs> a little bit cartoonish almost yeah. like a balloon deflating instead of having a nice punchy ending that should be louder and slower than the rest of what you've just said and I often think too you know I see people who give business presentations and they might have their powerpoint slides or whatever in their clicker and then they get surprised that it's the end <laughs> you know oh that's me now oh right good but thank you and then you think no that that was a that you've a missed opportunity opportunity to give a call to action or yes. wrap it up with with that kind of because the end bit the recency effect that's what people remember you know, absolutely if you leave them with something strong yes and I suppose it's the same for interviews yeah if you give an excellent answer or if you're interviewing someone and they give you an excellent answer but very often the ending is after an amazing answer they just say yeah, so, um, yeah, and kind of, you know, slap their legs as though I don't really know what to say. And that ruins all the hard work. Mm. Yes, I know exactly <laughs> what, what you mean. And it is just knowing when to stop and zip it and wait for the next question. Indeed, so true. <laughs> Thinking out loud and you think, oh, that sounded good. I'll say it again in a different way. So I will. Yeah. So I did. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell, if, if somebody contacted you today after hearing this podcast, Sinead, what would you do with them? Well, it depends what exactly they're looking for. There are a range of services that we provide and some of them do overlap. So, of course, we have presentation skills 
I also do some voiceover work for some radio stations and other organisations as well. I do a little bit of event hosting. There is a beautiful event that I've hosted for the past three years. I'm going to be hosting it again this year in Malone Golf Club. So beautiful surroundings. Burns Night. So this has been completely bizarre, out of the blue. I was asked to do it, as I said, a couple of years ago, and it's just grown every year. So I have a real passion for accent and dialect. Mm. And just a very, very quick anecdote here. My dad is a lawyer, but previously, in a previous life, he was a lecturer and in linguistics, in fact. So he was seconded to UCC in Cork, and he was about to take a job as the dialect coach for in the name of the father of all movies. With Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think I may have just been born or perhaps I was on the way at that stage, but my dad actually had an epiphany then himself and changed career to be a lawyer. So I often say, why on earth didn't you just stick it out there? Isn't that Isn't mad? It? Oh my goodness. So, so I think, yeah, so that is obviously where I get it from. So anyway, the Burns Night is me putting everything together, devising it, hosting it, project managing it and trying my best to recite poetry and the toasts all in an Ayrshire accent. So that has been so interesting for me and I look forward to it every year. It's just so different. Sinead, you know you're going to have to do the old Vagus now. <laughs> Please no. Next time, Sarah. <laughs> um, so have you worked on uh, many films yourself or anything like that? Is that something you'd like to get into? Well, I was involved in a short film myself over COVID, in fact. Yes, because Sinead is also an actor who's currently represented by Shelley Lowry Talent Management Agency as well. Correct. Yes, absolutely. So I've known Shelley for years. Shelley used to do speech and drama along with me. And we have crossed paths in many ways. Over lockdown, I was cast in a short film by Alistair Livingstone and Chilla Taldy. And it was a one-woman show, if you could call it that. It was filmed in Kilbrony Park in Restrever on a tiny budget. And it follows a homeless lady called Rose overcoming alcoholism. And it was a very interesting focus for me. Like everyone, lockdown wasn't a particularly amazing time for me in terms of work. But it was really lovely just to do something different. So... We were delighted then when I was awarded the Best Actress Excellence Award at the Women's International Film Festival in Delaware about a year ago. Wow, that's incredible. Really lovely. And unfortunately, the film is not yet in the public domain, but hopefully it will be soon. Gosh, and you loved that experience. I did. It was wonderful to be behind the camera as opposed to being on stage because up until then my film work would be quite limited. So it was very different. It was interesting to see the contrast between screen acting and stage acting. Obviously screen acting calls for you to be much more natural yeah. Whereas the stage clearly is full of theatre and... That's so interesting, isn't yes. it? Yeah, because you're so up close on the screen that it's it's about trying to play it down, really. Indeed. It was just wonderful because I was able to relive all my childhood and teenage years of, of amateur acting. 
and hopefully there are plenty more in the pipeline but it was a corporate organizations some of whom are very clear in terms of what they would like me to do for them other people are very flexible in terms of content so I did some work for a bank last year and they said you know what Sinead we are sick of talking about banking we don't want you to talk about the bank at all we want to do something different something fun so that was great for me really I tried to inject a lot of fun into my training because and this is me talking a lot of the content's quite boring it's quite dull hands up so I've tried to find ways to make it enjoyable. Given the fact that I do have a speech and drama background, there are a lot of theatrical components which enter into the realm of my training without giving too much away. And it does put people on the spot. I would hate people to be in my training room and think, please don't ask me, this is going to be awful. So it's a good way to, you know, loosen people up to get them more confident and comfortable with one another and also with the task at hand. And I suppose when you're working or you're doing this in front of your colleagues too, that can be so difficult. Maybe a room full of strangers, it's fine. But if you're working with these people and then you think they're going to see me looking vulnerable, this is going to push me out of my comfort zone. Am I going to look silly? Yes. And I've noticed as well that there are I suppose there's a big range of different capabilities in the room. People sometimes are different levels of seniority. So sometimes it is a little bit of, you know, reading the room to see what is it that people want here. And how much challenge with the individuals. Absolutely. So there's a lot of group work as well as individual work in these workshops. And do you do individual coaching then for people? I do. So I do one-to-one work as well. I'm based in my Banbridge studio, which is in the Scarver Road. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a wonderful stage there. We do have microphones. Because of my drama background, I try not to use the microphones too much for obvious reasons because projection is very important. So there is a wall of mirrors and people are able to look at their body language as well, which is very, very helpful. Yes, because your body language really can give so much away. Even before you've opened your mouth, people can have decided whether you want to be there, whether you're nervous. You can give off vibes that you didn't even know you were giving off. Absolutely. And I think sometimes if there is a contrast in your body language and your content, People will believe your body language over what you're saying. And I just think that is incredible. Mm. So if you're feeling inwardly really nervous or I don't want to be here or I can't wait for this to be over, even if your content is spectacular, people will think, oh, well, clearly they couldn't be bothered being here or they seem very uncertain or unprofessional. All of those negative connotations attached to that. How do you help people who are more introverted and don't like the limelight? What I say to those people is look at people around you who you feel are natural orators. And I'm not telling people to copy others, but there's absolutely no harm in emulating some of their little nuances and quirks and introducing it into your own style. You know, I think with introverts, it's a very grey area because... Some people as children were told, you're shy, you're such a shy child. 
And unfortunately, again, it has an effect. You're labelled for life. You really are. And I do see that a lot. And you mentioned about imposter syndrome earlier on. A wonderful client of mine recently said, I thought this was very clever. Sinead, don't call it imposter syndrome because syndrome is permanent. It's an imposter moment. Mm-hmm, that's that good. was a revelation. So this was a client telling me something. So I thought that's actually a really lovely way of looking at it. I might borrow that, Sinead. That's Pl- good. Please yes. do. Absolutely. Yes. yes. And actually, then you reframe how you see the challenge. It's not something you have for life. This is it. It's a moment. Indeed. And also, you know, the reality is with some introverts, they're never going to enjoy presenting. So you can help improve their skills you can make them feel less nervous more comfortable but you know the good thing is I tell people like that you don't need to love it you just need to tolerate it and tolerance for some people is enough so you're up there you're giving your presentation what makes a great presentation to you for me it is having gravitas And this word gravitas, I am obsessed with it. I'm very much into linguistics myself. And clearly it's a Latin word. And of course, it's where the word grave comes from, meaning serious. But actually the crux of it is heaviness and weightiness. So who doesn't want to have gravitas in a room? So sometimes whenever we're nervous, we can feel physically and mentally lighter, in fact, almost as though we're floating away into the clouds. And then that comes across in our communication. We sound a little bit watery, not very credible. And a really good tip that I like to advise people is remember that you're grounded, feel heavy in the room. So press your feet into the floor. It could be while you're, while you're, it could be whilst you're sitting or standing Remind yourself that you're there. So there's no choice. You have to do this, not in a claustrophobic way, but more in a confident way, saying to yourself, do you know what? I am here. You will listen to me. I am present. The TED Talk from Amy Cuddy, I think, is really, really important. She talks about the power pose and being able to fool your body into thinking you're more confident than you are. That's standing like Superman or Absolutely. Super Wonder Woman. Yes, and you know, it could well be a placebo effect, but some people are very sceptical about the whole thing. But what I think is, you may as well try it and see. If it mm. doesn't work for you, then that's fine. You don't do it on the stage, you do it somewhere else before. Absolutely. <laughs> so ideally, you know, in a bathroom, on your own. And Making yourself bigger. You do, absolutely. And I like to add a little bit more to it, in fact. So I look at myself in the mirror, I do the power pose and then hopefully there's no one around when I say this, but I try to say out loud, I am Wonder Woman, I can do this, which sounds ludicrous. The thing is, I don't care because it works for me. It works for all of my clients bar one and that was a wonderful young woman who was preparing for her medical exams at Queen's. She came to me for a few weeks beforehand. She had her Viva, I think it's called at the end, Mm -hmm. the verbal exam. And she was asked a question in her exam and she took an absolute mental blank, excused herself. She went off to the bathroom and then whenever she was relaying the story to me, I can just imagine her now. She said, Sinead, I was looking at myself in the mirror, 
but I could barely even see myself because of the tears. She said, oh, you know, you said this would work, the power pose, it didn't work. For her, she was too far gone. So you need to do it early enough. Yes. And I would feel odd if I didn't do it. I did it today. It's something that I feel I have to do now. So I tell all my clients that it's great. Do you feel that you're the same person when you're performing or doing this interview in the studio as you are normally? Or do you have to switch on Sinead Performer? Well, I do think that we all have to enhance our personalities. Now, I'm at great pains to point out that I'm not telling people you have to be somebody else or you're not an actor, don't put on a mask. But there is an element of exaggeration, if that is the word, or, you know, flicking the switch up to be a little bit bigger than you normally are, a little bit louder. You know, certainly maybe it's just me, but I'm not the same person you know, lying on the couch on a Friday evening, eating crisps and drinking wine, as I would be speaking to a crowd on a stage, you know, so we That all... would be quite entertaining though, <laughs> it wouldn't would it be good to give it a go? Just Maybe say I whatever you want. <laughs> be career limiting or you, who knows where you'll be, you'll be in the Edinburgh Fringe next year. Um, what are your goals then for Vocalis Public Speaking? Where are you taking the business next? Well, the goals are simply to continue our expansion. At the moment, it's just me. My husband does help out. He runs his own marketing agency, so I have him tortured in terms of marketing. But really, it's just me. So it's, I suppose, finding the time to delve into my target market a little bit more. So I have an event coming up in the next few months and we are collaborating with two other organisations. It's going to be at Stormont. I can't say very much more than that, but it is an event for young people and it will be amazing. So I'm very much looking forward to that. It's good to have tasks, I think. It's good to have aims. I have a lot of corporate workshops coming up as well. A lot of my clients are lawyers given the fact that I used to be one myself. So I'm doing a lot of work with the Institute of Professional Legal Studies and Queen's itself. So So great goals for expansion. And do you feel like, it's quite difficult, isn't it, when you have a business like yours? It reminds me a little bit of my business, but Mm -hmm. when you are the business... How do you bring others in to do what you do with those unique skills? That is the thing. And it's a very good question. And I don't have the answer yet, but hopefully I will have the answer soon. (laughs) Come back next year and we'll we'll discuss this. I will. Absolutely. I think I wear two hats. So I'm the, you know, crazy, fun speech and drama teacher for the children. And then I'm a little bit more corporate for the presentation skills. But actually, it's a lovely balance. It really is very nice, which keeps me interested and keeps my clients interested as well. So if anybody's listening to this and feels like they really want some help, whether they do have the wedding speech coming up, whether they're going to be a podcast guest on the Public (laughs) Eye podcast, whether, you know, they just want to improve, um, but they're still feeling apprehensive, what advice would you give to them? Well, I would advise them, of course, to get in touch with me. The website is www.vocalis.co.uk. We have a brand new website. My telephone number and all the other contact information is there. If you're feeling unsure or uncertain, speak to me. I can tailor a program that suits your needs. And a lot of people actually are concerned about the confidentiality, especially senior people. So they don't want people to know 
It's wonderful, of course, to get testimonials. And I do have lots of them, thankfully, on my LinkedIn profile. But then we have other clients who would rather people not know. Of course. So there is a lot of discretion. People can come for a one-off session as a one-to-one for two hours, or we can tailor a program to fit their needs. But it's something that I think a lot of people are getting more interested in because presentation skills are such a regular part of everyone's job these days. And a vital part of business if you're selling or you're having client meetings or just to, to have your own marketing messages right for the business. Absolutely. And for me as well, one of the things that I'm most interested in is listening to people's voices. So I'm such a voice nerd that I tend to pick up things in people's voices that they may or may not be aware of. So I won't let any secrets out on that at the moment. But, you know, there are certain little, not necessarily weaknesses, but little quirky things perhaps that may be attacking people's credibility as speakers. So I love to point those out as well. Are you talking about grammar? Grammar is one of those things, but I was thinking more things like elision, vocal fry, voice dropping. Ooh. There are a couple of things, yes. Yeah, so, and then the ums and the ahs. This is the thing, absolutely. That is the hardest habit to break. And, you know, I do it myself. It's habitual. So I have to think about either being completely silent or having some kind of linking phrase, for example, moving on to. Next, now let's talk about this, but it does take practice. Yes, practices everything. <laughs> Sinead, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the Public Eye podcast studio today. Um, I have to ask you the final question I asked all the podcast guests. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire existing business owners and ambitious entrepreneurs to grow their business by offering an insight into the success of businesses such as yours, such as Vocalis Public Speaking. But what advice would you give to people who may have a business idea but have no idea where to begin or are unsure like you when you left the law, as to whether this risk is worth taking? Okay. Well, I would advise anyone to consult with their trusted family and friends, get honest advice, honest feedback from them, speak to people who are entrepreneurs already, who have done it, and they can point out the risks involved. I probably would advise people to be a little bit more organised than I was. I did, in a way, jump into the abyss without any long-term plan, and I've been very lucky the way it all eventually worked out. But just make sure that if you are considering jumping ship from employment into self-employment, that you have all of the homework done in terms of a business plan. Banbridge Enterprise Centre were very helpful with me when I was starting off. There was a wonderful lady called Kira McNeese who helped me out. So I would get in touch with your local enterprise agency. And really, what is the worst that can happen? You know, I would simply take the risk. I'm so delighted to have done it. I'm finally passionate about what I do. Every day is different. So I'm just loving life now. I think my family is happier as well because I probably wasn't the easiest to live with back then. So everyone's happier, healthier, and I'm just really happy that I 
it took that leap at last. Absolutely. And you're not punching in the hours anymore. You're helping others as well to invest in themselves and increase their worth. So thank you, Sinead. It's been a joy to have you in the studio today. And thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next time, I'm going to be joined by Louise Brogan, founder of Social BNI. So if you want to know how to get your LinkedIn right, then do join me for another fantastic episode of the Public Eye podcast coming soon. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.